Think about what boards do and then think about your skills through that lens and what your skills are that you can lend to the boardroom. And they might be, you know, critical thinking, decision-making or collaboration. Those sorts of things are just as important as the technical skills. Renata Bernardi, and this is the Job Hunting Podcast, where I interview experts and professionals and discuss issues that are important for job hunters and those who are working to advance their careers. So make sure that you subscribe and follow, and let's dive right in. Hello, and welcome back to the Job Hunting Podcast, your go-to resource for navigating the complex world of corporate employment and career advancement. Today, we have an incredibly special episode for you focusing on governance roles. Whether you're interested in becoming an executive director now or in the future, or you want to add governance expertise to your career portfolio, today's guest is the person you want to hear from. Joining me today is Helia Zvindin, a prominent figure in the world of governance and a staunch advocate for board diversity and capacity building. She's here to shed light on the journey of board roles and how you can best position yourself for success. Helga is a fellow of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, the Peak Association for Company Directors in Australia, and host of the Take On Board podcast, a podcast you should listen to if you're interested in board roles. She's also a consultant specializing in governance. Helia is currently on the board of prestigious organizations. She is the chair of the Australian Asbestos Eradication Agency Board, board member of the Workplace Injury Commission, and a member of nominations committees of the Victorian Department of Health, Greenpeace Australia Pacific, and Basketball Australia. She has also been on the board of the Royal Women's Hospital, YWCA Victoria, Social Housing Victoria, and the chair of the Center of Sustainability Leadership. I hope that you will enjoy this conversation, so let's get going. All right, Helia, thank you so much for making the time to speak to the Job Hunting Podcast, briefly explaining it to you and other people that could be new to this podcast. We focus on helping white-collar workers, desk workers, usually middle managers and senior executives look at tips and advice for their future careers and helping to give them a sense of control over outcomes. And for that reason, it's lovely to have you on board because many times I'm working, especially with my clients, helping them think about the tail end of their careers. And board opportunities usually comes up as a topic of discussion and many times something that they want to start planning for. Before we deep dive into how to help them, could you please share a snapshot of your personal journey in governance and how you transitioned into board roles? Oh, a snapshot of a long and winding road. Let me do my best. So if I think back to what was probably my very first board role, it was probably the student representative on school council way back in my teenage years. And I'm not sure what got me interested in it at that time. I don't think it would have been the word governance. I don't think it would have even been the concept of governance. I just wanted to be involved in things. 
and being involved in school council seemed like a pretty good way of getting involved in things. I look back on that now and I feel very fortunate in a way that I started that governance learning early. Yeah, through that role and through some others as well. So look, the winding road, I'm a lawyer by trade, although I don't practice as a lawyer these days, but being a a lawyer is helpful, but absolutely not essential. So for those that are listening, if you're not a lawyer, do not think, oh, that's not for me. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an accountant. Governance is for everyone and boardrooms are better off if they have all of the different experiences in the world. So yeah, so lawyer had been involved in a number of different organisations in my working life and different roles from facilitator to the CEO of a not-for-profit agency to, as I say, a lawyer. And sitting in the background had always been different board roles. So my first non-executive role, not being on the school council, was YWCA Victoria, an organisation that provides housing and a whole range of other services to women and girls. And that was my first non-executive role. And I guess that helped to set me up both in terms of having an interest in the work that that organisation did, supporting women and girls, and professionally as well. So this is what I love about board work. It's both, you know, your single track professional stuff, as well as gives you an opportunity to get involved in a whole range of organisations that might not be what you do day to day as well. So you can mix that up into a portfolio of different things, whether you're in a full-time job or whether you're building it together with other sorts of work like consulting. So, yeah, I'm not sure if that exactly addresses how you... Does that add size? No, that's a great answer. Mm-hmm. I think what we can jump in now is helping people understand governance. And for our listeners who are just starting to explore what board positions are, and I, I mentioned before, Helia, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mentioned before, you know, preparing for boards at the tail end of their careers, but I don't think that that's absolutely necessary. So I'd like us to explore that. How can people that are mid-career or early in their careers also think about governance? So how about we start by explaining what governance is and why it's important to be involved in governance? Great. And I'm so glad you picked up that about the tail end of your careers. I don't know if you noticed, but when you said that, I wrote it down and thought, right, I've got to come back to that. Because governance is not just for those at the tail end of their careers. I think it should be for those starting, middle and end of. And what is governance? What do boards do? They support the oversight of an organisation. So they support the CEO and the executive team in oversight. They assist the CEO and the executive team in terms of setting the strategy and setting the long-term vision for the organisation. And they make decisions. There are some decisions that are only set aside for the board. So generally speaking, it's not always the case, but generally speaking, boards are not working in the organisation and therefore they provide these fresh eyes and outside views that the people who are working in the organisation day-to-day can't necessarily do. So. Yeah, oversight and compliance, decision-making and strategic direction are the key roles for the board. And the board is just, inverted commas, a group of people who are having conversations supporting the CEO and the executive. And any group that comes together to do that role and to make decisions, all of the evidence says that diverse groups make better decisions, which is why it's not just for those at end of career. It needs to be everybody along the spectrum so that those groups can make the best decisions possible. 
And diversity obviously comes in all sorts of different ways, shapes and forms, not just age, but that is one part of it. So for anyone then who is interested in getting that foot in the door, what are the foundational steps that they should consider in order to prepare themselves for board roles? First up, I would just say, put your hand up. Tell people that you're interested in being on a board. Tell yourself first up. Hello, person myself. I'm interested in being on a board. That's where I want to get my learning, where I want to make a contribution, where I might, you know, be able to yeah, learn some new things. And once you've made that own decision yourself, you know, it is key to let people know and to have a look around at what is available. Board roles are advertised in a variety of different places. If you're here in Australia, you know, Women on Boards has a good list, the Institute of Company Directors, the Institute of Community Directors. So start having a look around at what those roles are and put your hand up for them. Do you need to do any specific training? Possibly not at the start, I would say. It doesn't hurt to have a bit of a view about what a director does and the obligations of a director, but you can also learn a little bit of that on the job. So sometimes learning whilst you're in a role can be more powerful than learning it in theory before you get into it. So yeah, I would start to think about what board directors do, think about what your contribution can be to the boardroom and put your hand up, put yourself out there, start looking for roles and just get out and do it. Elliot, how important is networking at that stage? You mentioned, you know, let people know. Is it still the case that board roles are filled by people who you know and it's important to know people in boards in order to get to that level and have a role? Sometimes, yes. Increasingly, board roles are being advertised, which I think is an excellent thing. I don't understand why any organisation would just rely on networks when you could advertise. So increasingly, board roles are being advertised. However, even when they're being advertised, it can help to know people who are board directors or who might be board directors of the organisations you're interested in joining. So I think it's a bit of column A, a bit of column B. Doing a bit of both doesn't hurt. And whilst building your network around board directors might not be the way you get the role, it is partly the way you will learn about what is involved in being a board director and what therefore might be important for you to highlight in your own applications. So I think it's important to build your community around that, to learn, to learn about opportunities and to be able to refine your own offering for the boardroom as well. Yeah, so I think it's key to do those sorts of things. But I'm a connector. I can't help myself in terms of those community things. So, yeah, I think it's an important thing to do. that's interesting. It might be that because people are connectors, they want to, you know, engage with others. So networking is part and parcel with maybe the personality of being on boards. Could that be it? I don't know. But you're right. It it seems to be very much, you know, a a way of getting there, the network, even when the role is advertised, isn't it? Look, I think, I hope that increasingly as organisations are either begrudgingly accepting or actually accepting of more diversity in the boardroom, I think with that, you know, if we're going to get diversity, you can't rely on networks. People know people like them. You know, I'm a lawyer by trade. I know a lot of lawyers. That's not very useful if we're using my network to then get on the board people who might have marketing and comms experience or might have 
coaching experience or who might have sports experience or whatever it may be. So, I mean, to some extent, I feel like those organisations that are wholly and solely relying on their network, they probably don't have that much diversity in the boardroom and that may not be the best experience for people anyway. So those that advertise, I would say, hopefully, are knowing that we need all sorts of different types in the boardroom and therefore it would be a better experience for people anyway. I'd love to talk to you about compensation as well. There's this belief that in order to start a board position, you should start with non-profit roles and opportunities that are not paid and that will then give you a chance to learn and potentially get into boards where there is compensation for the work that you're doing. Do you agree with that idea? Are there other ways around this? And do boards pay well? Okay, so let me start there rather than than what the journey is. Some boards pay very well, but they are few and far between. So let's look at the Australian example. Let's say the, I don't know, for argument's sake, let's use the ASX 200. And it's not just listed boards that pay. There are some private boards that pay as well. But actually, for argument's sake, let's make it the ASX 500, although I suspect the company that's 499 and 500 you know, they're very different to the top ones, right? But let's just say the ASX 500 all pay their boards reasonably well, which I don't think they all do, but let's assume they do. And let's assume all of those boards have 10 people on it. It's probably less, to be honest, but it makes the maths easy for me. That's 500 organisations, 10 board directors, 5,000 people. That's not many. If you were going for any other job around Australia, and there was only 5,000 people, or if you're looking at the ASX 200, 2,000 people employed in that role, then, you know, that's very competitive. And that's assuming that every director, you know, they're all different people. They're sometimes not. People gather roles. They might have more than one role. Now, I don't say this to put people off being on boards. I am you know, a governance nerd, and I encourage people to get involved in the governance of the organisation. Doing it solely to, you know, match what might be a healthy executive paycheck can be challenging. And I just put that out there because I think there is sometimes this impression that if I, you know, I'll go and pick up a couple of board roles and, you know, be able to just go to a couple of board meetings here and there, earn lots of money and go and play golf or whatever it may be. It's not always that way in reality. So, yeah, know that there's just not many board roles in existence that are well-paid. Some of them are less well-paid and you might need to mix those things together. So, and some of them are unpaid. As you've said, often being on a not-for-profit board, actually, let me reframe that, often being on the board of a smaller organisation is unpaid. A lot of the larger not-for-profits are now starting to pay their board directors. And likewise, if we look at the private sector, Often the smaller organisations don't pay their directors as they're in startup. So to me, I think it's actually more about the size of the organisation than the sector that it's in. So yeah, know that it's competitive. Know that those beautifully high-paid board roles are sometimes few and far between. Should you start with an unpaid role, whether that's the not-for-profit sector or not? I mean, you're talking to somebody who's got a little bit of bias in it because my first couple of board roles were unpaid. And I learned an enormous amount from those roles. I didn't start in those board roles thinking that I was going to develop my career in governance and become a governance consultant and a board director at a 
kind of governance expert. That's not why I got involved in those organisations. I got involved because I wanted to learn more, I wanted to make a contribution, and I felt passionate about those organisations. So should you start there? I actually think it's a great way to learn and it's a great way to make a contribution, but you don't have to start there. I think don't say, oh, I haven't had a board role before. I can only go for unpaid roles. I think look, identify the skills that you have for the boardroom. So what are the key skills that you can lend to a board knowing, as I said before, that a board's role is around oversight, around decision-making and strategic direction. So thinking about what is the role for the board, what are the key skills I can lend to the boardroom? Think about the sort of organisation you want to be in the boardroom of. I don't think it should just be, I just want to be on a board, any board. You might think of an industry or a sector or a type of organisation and then start to pursue the board roles. And there might be a mix of paid and unpaid in there. Yes, that's um I'm thinking about what you just said and thinking about how people sometimes get in their own way. And, you know, mm. this is such a um, market to be on boards. Um, is it useful to have a very thought out strategy in order to achieve your goals? You know, I'm just thinking about the common challenges that professionals may face when they are aspiring for a board position, yeah. but not knowing how to move strategic, strategically in order yeah. to get one of those. Can you expand? Yep. Sure. So I think the first thing to do is to think about your experience and your skills through the governance lens. So if you're a, I don't know, comms and marketing person for argument's sake, and you will have your operational skills, you will be writing up your comms strategies and briefing people and, you know, doing content creation, whatever it may be. I'm not a comms person, so apologies to comms people who might be listening to this and I've just described their roles badly. But you will be thinking about the day-to-day work. You then think, I would like to make, I would like to get involved in the governance of an organisation, in that strategic direction, in that oversight type role, in that decision-making. Start to think about what skills you can lend in a governance role. So your skills and then chunk them up, I guess. So it's thinking about what is the, how can your comms and marketing skills help set the strategic direction of an organisation? How can your comms and marketing skills help in the oversight? How can your comms and marketing skills help in decision making? So you want to chunk up. I was having a conversation with a group the other day about this exact thing. And one of the people there said, oh, one of my key skills is project management. And I said, "Mm, can I just pull you up on that slightly? This is not to take away from the skills of project management, and I have no doubt you're excellent at project management person, but for a board, project management in some ways is neither here nor there. It's not what boards do. So have a think about how you can chunk it up into, you know, it might be governance of projects. That is a different thing to project management. So yeah, so the first thing I would say to people is think about your skills. What can you do? Think about what boards do. And then think about your skills through that lens and what your skills are that you can lend to the boardroom. And they might be, you know, critical thinking, decision making, or, you know, collaboration. Those sorts of things are just as important as the technical skills. So that's the first thing. Secondly, as I said a moment ago, really think about what sort of organisation you would like to make a contribution to. Is it an organisation in the communication sector? Is it the financial services? Is it professional services? Is it mining? You know, is it engineering? Is it 
aged care. So what is the sector? And also what is the type of organisation? Is it a startup, one that's more mature or anywhere in between? Mm -hmm. And once you've got some clarity on those things, that will help to guide you where you are looking. It will help to guide the networks that you want to pick up. And that will help, you know, to guide exactly the process that you will use to get yourself into that boardroom thinking and boardroom, boardroom networks as well. The other thing I would say is if you are applying for board roles, if you've done all of that thinking and you've looked at where they're advertised and you've found some roles that you want to apply for, the other thing you really need to do is do yourself a governance resume. It does not look the same as your professional resume. It needs to all be done through the governance lens and it's probably a bit shorter than your professional resume, but do not put your professional resume in. As somebody who's on a number of nominations committees and I look at a lot of resumes, I can tell when people have put in their professional resume and it makes my job difficult when I'm trying to work it out and you don't want to make the person who's looking at all of these, you don't want to make their job difficult. Oh, that's interesting. These days, a professional resume is between, in Australia, between three to four pages long. We try to keep it three pages long. In the United States, one to two. And then there's lots mm -hmm. of variations around the world. So what would you say the size is for a board resume? And also, you know, what would be, without going into specifics, what would be the key characteristics that people can start thinking of in terms of getting themselves ready for this? Okay. So a board resume is one to two pages. Don't make it more than two. If you can get it on one, great, but two is fine. It focuses on governance. So the skills that you are highlighting, your strengths that you are highlighting are those governance skills. You know, it'll be strategic thinking or critical thinking or financial oversight as opposed to project management or, you know, financial bookkeeping or whatever it may be. Yeah, it'll be those chunked up strengths that you will be highlighting. Your governance experience should be highlighted. That comes before your professional experience. And even for people that may never have been in a boardroom before, I would encourage you to think broadly around what your governance experience might be. You might have been involved in, you know, governance groups of projects, or you might have been involved in the committee of an organisation. You might, like me, have been on your school council, either as a student or as a parent. That is governance. So highlight those experiences and then your professional experience. Your professional experience is generally just a couple of dot points, which can be quite heartbreaking, thinking, oh, there's my whole career, just in a couple of dot points, as opposed to really highlighting everything that you've put there. So yeah, everything is through that governance lens. Got it. Now, Helia, we can't really have a conversation like this without talking about the big elephant in the room. We touched on it briefly before, but it's diversity and inclusion. Time and time again, I read reports, both in Australia and overseas, in the United States and the UK, that boards are not diverse enough, that you know women are not really represented, not to say minorities. So... You're a strong advocate for this, for board diversity. So how can aspiring board members who, you know, champion for diversity and inclusion secure positions on boards? I mean, I hate to take the owners away from the leadership and put it in the candidates, yeah. but my role as a career coach is to support the candidate, not to change the world. That's what I tell my clients all the time. I wish that 
the game was different. <laughs> but because we yes. don't have time to change the game and you need this opportunity now or, you know, in a few years, this is the best way to play it. So I want to help yeah. candidates on how to best approach opportunities to give them a chance. So first I'd say just get in amongst it. Like put your hand up for roles. Yeah, put your hand up for roles is the first part. Sometimes I hear, and I'm guessing you hear the same, oh, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an accountant, therefore, you know, boardrooms are not for me. Boardrooms are for you, you know, people who have all those different skills and they are for you because you have those different skills. Mm. So I encourage people to put their hand up and to highlight that they have different skills that they can lend to the boardroom. It might be technology skills. It might be people and culture skills. It might be comms and marketing skills. A whole range of things are needed in the boardroom and are needed in that group for that group to be making strong decisions, which is, you know, part of technical expertise, as I say, leaving aside all of the other diversity kind of traits. So, hello boardroom, you need me because I'm younger. Hello boardroom, you need me because I am from a different cultural background. Hello boardroom, you need me because I'm from the LGBTQIA plus community. Whatever it may be, that to a good board, to an organisation that is serious about diversity, they will value that. They should value that because they know that having sameness in the boardroom is not going to be making the best decisions. So I would say to people, put your hand up, get yourself out there and start highlighting the difference that you bring as a strength. If you are finding there are organisations that are just, no thanks, we would like another lawyer, we would like another accountant, we'd like another person I went to school with, just avoid those organisations. Mm. That is not strong governance. That is, that's probably not a boardroom you want to be involved in. And that organisation is not setting themselves up to have the best governance, to have the best decision making. So focus on those organisations that will do that. And there are plenty of them out there that are supporting it, probably the ones that are more likely to advertise. So that's useful too. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Another important topic that I wanted to discuss with you is when professionals are hybrid. So they, let's say, I'll just give my own example. They have a full-time job and they sit on a couple of advisory committees or boards and then they get a job which doesn't allow them to do that and they have to step down from all of their opportunities. Mm -hmm. So I was naive and I didn't negotiate well enough when I stepped up to one of my past opportunities and that was detrimental to future opportunities, right? Because I was on a trajectory mm. that stopped very abruptly. And then I didn't pick it up after I left that role, even though when I started my next role, I made sure to change actually my contract with the institution to allow me a lot of flexibility to have side hustles and opportunities like board positions be allowed. So have you encountered that in your past or in other people that you know that have gone through the same experience? So it's so interesting to hear that. I think for me, I've been fortunate, I think, that when I've been involved in organisations on their boards, my employer has never gotten in the way. In fact, my employer in various different roles have valued that and seen that as a good thing. So it disappoints me greatly. And 
look, there will be some circumstances where it will be a direct conflict of interest. So, I don't know, if you're working at a financial institution and you're on the board of another financial institution, that's probably a conflict of interest, right? If you're working at the regulator for anything, for building or for whatever it may be, and then being on a building board, that's probably a conflict. But as long as there's not a direct conflict, that can't be managed. Because the other thing I would say is sometimes there is a conflict and the conflict can be managed. So it's not always just because there is a conflict means that people have to exit. You might have other ways of managing it. So I would say, yeah, if there's not a conflict, it's okay. If there is a conflict that can be managed, it's okay. And for people that might be experiencing this, I would highlight to your managers, employers, leads, whoever it may be, the additional experience and learning you will get and how that will contribute to you in your job. So if you work in an organisation that has a board and you are involved, even if it's only occasionally in, say, writing a board paper or in presenting to board, there is nothing like being on the board of another organisation that teaches you what boards need to read or what boards need to hear. If you're working in an organisation or in a role, and this would be just about any organisation, that wants you to look ahead and think about strategy, there is nothing like being in the boardroom of another organisation to help teach you about that future thinking and that strategy and give you those practice around it. So, yeah, like I say, it disappoints me greatly that employers would say, oh, no, you can't possibly do that. It's just like... I think you're absolutely right about the perceived Mm. conflict of interest. And, you know, I think my naivety was in not showing how we could manage that and how to reinterpret it in a way Mm -hmm. where that was actually a benefit to my organization rather than detrimental in any way. And the second time when I was able to exclude those clauses from my contract I don't think that there was any issues with conflicts of interest I think it was just old policies that had never really been challenged yes and I was like okay I don't think that this fits anymore with the modern world and I was able to remove a few things from my contract just by raising them and making people sort of review policies that probably were written for a different time Yes. And I think it's great if you can do that. I mean, as a board director, I have been, you know, I've raised with the CEO of one of the organisations I was previously on the board of, that none of the executive members were on a board and that I thought it would be good if they were on a board because, again, it helps them in that experience. So, yeah, I just think it's such great experience for people. And in terms of your professional development, you know, I had a conversation just this morning with the CEO of an organisation, not an organisation I'm on the board of, but the CEO of an organisation and talking about her team and things she could put in place for development of that team. And I'm like, how about encouraging them to get board roles? Oh, that's a great idea, she says. I said, you know, you want them to step up in terms of strategy, you know, in terms of encourage them to get onto boards. Yes. And Helvia, so, okay, so let's say you got a board position, right? And They onboard Mm -hmm. you, which is, you know, no pun intended. And then you are now a member of this board. Tell me about what happens behind the scenes and what are the sort of time commitments that people would be looking at when they do join a board? Great question. So what to expect? You can expect, so if you're on a board, Well, for me, if an organisation says, oh, we'd like you to join the board or I see an advertisement, 
There's a board meeting once a month or once every two months. It goes for two hours. So, you know, your commitment's just two to three hours. That is such a red flag to me because the board meeting itself is just part of the role. Things you can expect. So before the board meeting and hopefully at least a week before the board meeting, you will get the board pack. You'll get the reading that is required for the board meeting. There is wild disparity in organisations about how long board papers are. I was talking to a board recently. They had just got their board pack and it was about 600 pages that they had needed to read. Oh, wow. I have a board meeting tomorrow. It was about 350 pages for my board meeting tomorrow. Other boards I know might be less than that. Another board I'm on recently, the board pack was only about 60 or 70 pages. So you will be spending at least as much time reading as you spend in the boardroom. And in fact, you might spend more time reading than you spend in the boardroom. So I allocate at least a couple of hours reading. It's in my diary. So the you know, board meeting will be, for argument's sake, next Thursday. I will have a chunk of time this week or this weekend to read my board papers, anywhere between two to four hours. So that's the first thing. There's lots of reading to be done. Secondly, once you've read them, you might have questions. And there might be questions that you want to ask in the board meeting, so you'd make a note of them. But there might also be some questions you want to have clarified before the board meeting. Mm -hmm. So you might be getting on the phone to the chair of the board, or you might be getting on the phone to, I don't know, the chair of the finance committee or strategy committee or whatever it may be. So there might be some toing and froing prior to the board meeting. I mentioned there you might be on the phone to the chair of the finance committee. Mm. The other thing with boards is there's subcommittees. And sometimes there'll only be one or two. Sometimes there's none, but mostly there's a couple of subcommittees and they might meet once a month or more. So you've got board meetings, you've got reading for your board meetings, you've got subcommittees, you've got reading for your subcommittees. You've got all of that ad hoc in between, oh, I'll just ring the chair about this. I'll just contact the CEO about that. I'll just find out these things. So there's some ad hoc things. And there is any number of other, you might be going to events. You might be involved in strategy days. There might be full day strategy days coming together. There might be board reflection and review. There might be a board evaluation. The board might have a stakeholder engagement plan that involves the board. So there might be some key stakeholders that you are involved with meeting with as well. So there's any number of things outside just the boardroom. The boardroom itself is often the least of the uh, actual role. There's a whole range of other things that might come up as well. Oh, so in terms of time, you asked about the time commitment. My rule of thumb for boards is it's generally 10 to 15 hours a month. That is everything that is required, the reading, the meetings, the subcommittees and so on. And sometimes it's more and sometimes it's less. So it's not always that much, but it's a time commitment. And as a board director, you've got some pretty hefty obligations, director obligations and duties. So you need to make sure you're putting in the time so that you are discharging those duties properly. Right. And before we go as well, I think it will be important for us to discuss the risks involved in being a board director and maybe even discuss it in different segments. So publicly listed companies, private companies, non-profits. It will be interesting for us to get an understanding from you what the risks are. Sure. So I actually think the risks to some extent are the same across the board. Mm, Okay. And again, they probably, I think, 
apply more to the size of the organisation than they do, whether it's public sector, private sector, listed or not. You know, so being a director, you know, you are responsible. You are a responsible officer of the organisation and you have duties and obligations. And if things go pear-shaped, you're responsible. So that's the oversight function. Yes, the CEO, yes, the executive team might also be responsible, but you are responsible because you've got the oversight. So, I mean, the key things around finance, you need to be absolutely assured that the organisation is solvent. That is, that they can pay their debts as and when they fall due. And if there are financial challenges, you need to be able to, as a board, make decisions about what the organisation is going to do. So yeah, there might, solvency is one of the key ones, but, but there are all sorts of other things, you know, health and safety laws, superannuation laws, risk around reputation, which can come up in any number of ways around things going wrong in the organisation. The board also has oversight of strategic risks. So every organisation should have a risk register. The board should be setting their risk appetite. Some organisations are more risky than others and they're, they're happy with that. But it is something as a board director, even possibly when you're in the mix for a role, it might be worth asking if you can see their risk register, confidentially, potentially, but having a look at what risks are on their radar. You know, cyber risks, technology risks, people risks. There is all sorts of stuff and the board is responsible. So... A, you want to do your job well to ensure that the organisation minimises those risks. You won't get rid of them. You know, risks are there. It's not about, you know, if, if an organisation has such a low risk appetite and tries to minimise every risk, that is a risk in and of itself generally because you're not taking any risk. You want to be able to take measured risk. You definitely want to be able to understand that risk. And if organisations get it wrong, if directors get it wrong, and there are, you know, there's royal commissions, there's legal cases and so on about it where directors or boards or others in the organisation haven't got it right. There can be civil penalties and there can be criminal penalties. Yeah. So again, I absolutely don't want to put people off. Being on a board is a fantastic experience of learning about organisations and learning about yourself and learning new skills and so on. But it comes with responsibility and we need to understand that so that you can manage your own risk around it as well. Yes. I don't think you have to worry so much about putting people off, at least not on this podcast, because we have quite a few episodes on discussing board roles because Correct. there is such interest from our audience, you know, usually senior executives, mm -hmm. people in the corporate world. Most of my clients are in their late 40s, 50s. Some of them are mm -hmm. in their 60s. And they are thinking about potentially moving into a portfolio right. career and that some board roles would be part of that, both paid and unpaid or both. So, yeah, no, don't worry about that with my crowd. <laughs> Excellent. Is there any topic that we didn't discuss that you would like to bring up? I think we've covered so much. I can't think of anything else to ask you. <laughs> Actually, can we – one other – I'm just thinking, what do I get asked all the time? Yes, like, and we've yes. covered a lot of those things. 
whiteboard resumes and how to think about where to look and all those sorts of things. But one thing I get asked all the time, should I do the company director's course with the AICD? Yes. Well, there are equivalents around the world. So this podcast is listed everywhere. And I agree that, you know, I personally did the Harvard program, but, you know, everywhere around the world, that will be an equivalent to the Australian Institute of Company Director's course. Okay. So what is your answer to that? So you're absolutely right. It's not just the Australian Institute of Company Directors. They're part of the international network. So whatever is the company director's course where you're listening from, my view is that will the company director's course or its equivalent help you get a board role? Yes, it will. Will you get more out of it once you're on a board as opposed to before being on a board? Yes, you will. So I encourage people to actually wait until you're in the boardroom to do the company director's course because I think you learn far more from it when you've got that practical application rather than doing it as a preparation thing. Having said that, I completely understand that for some people, it's like, oh, I really want to get it because it'll help me get a board role and it probably will. But there are also other ways to showcase your governance skills to get you that board role. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. If you can, I would say wait until you've got the board role, even if that's inverted commas just a not-for-profit or an unpaid board role, even that will give you that practical application. So it's good to get that training. I'd been a board director for about eight or nine years, I think, when I did the company director's course. So I learned a bit on the job. I learned a bit, you know, in other courses and then I did it. And for me, having that practical application was fantastic. And you could tell the other people in the room because part of it is also the network that you get there. And you could kind of tell from the conversation those people that were already in the boardroom versus those that weren't already. So yeah, if you can hold off, I would say, and do it once you're in the boardroom. Okay, great. Great answer. I like that very much because it is expensive, isn't it? It's a big investment. So yeah. So that's the other thing I would say is at least here in Australia as well, if you choose the path to paid board roles through unpaid board roles of a not-for-profit organisation, there are often scholarships that you can get to do the company director's course. So whilst you might be in an unpaid board role, there might be other, you know, other ways, other financial benefits from that, that you can get such as getting a scholarship for part of that. And even some not-for-profits, if they don't pay their directors, sometimes make a contribution towards professional development. So yeah, so what I'm going to do is put in the episode show notes, the links to the Australian Institute of Company Directors and other institutes that I find internationally. But tell me about your own program, because I can see behind you a banner and it says Stake On Board. So if you're listening to the podcast on your app, you can't see it. What is Stake On Board? Is it a course? It's a course. It's a podcast. It's a community. So for me, when I started running my own business, I'd been on boards before I was running my own business and for years, possibly much like you, people would come to me and say, oh, can you have a coffee with Mary? She wants to talk about getting on a board. Can you have a coffee with Joan? Can you have a coffee with, can you have a coffee with? And I'm very happy to do that. But then I thought, well, what if I brought these women together? Because the programs I do are only for women and gender diverse people. What if I brought those people together so that they could learn together, they could cheer squad each other, they could support each other and be a bit of a brain's trust for each other. And I could help facilitate that learning, but it's group learning rather than individual learning. You know, it's back to what I was saying earlier. I'm a connector. 
I'm a community builder. Like I think we're always stronger together. So I wanted to bring that community to it. So I created a program called Board Kickstarter to get women into the boardroom and people started doing it. And then they started getting board roles. <laughs> so then I created the Take On Board Accelerator program, which is a small group program for people who are in the boardroom. And it's like your own personal brains trust group. You have a small group that you nut out some of the challenges of being on a board. So there's a couple of programs as part of Take On Board. There is the podcast, if I can give myself a plug. It's a pretty good way of learning about governance. So if people are interested in boards and hearing about different challenges or governance issues or about different people's storied journeys to the boardroom, tune in to Take On Board. And it's a community. We have events. There is a very active Facebook group where people can pose questions and so on and people chime in and help out. There's, you know, a LinkedIn group and so on. So yeah, so it's all of those things. It's the podcast, it's programs, it's events, and it's a community that comes together to cheer squad each other and help each other out and to have that collective wisdom to help us all be our best in the boardroom. Awesome. I'm going to add the link in the show notes as well. So if you're listening, please look at the show notes and there will be a link there to Helga's website, which includes all of the opportunities that she has for women. Helga, I really enjoyed this conversation with you. It's been a while since we've had a board expert on the show. We've had some board members and, you know, discussing how to get on boards from their personal perspective and how to then become a chair and the difference between being a board member and a chair. And I'm going to link in the episode show notes those episodes in case people want to deep dive into this mm -hmm. whole idea but it's really wonderful to have you and being able to ask you and actually validate some of my own thinking you know my role as a career coach is to get people into operational roles and executive roles but you know I usually save some of the time I spend with my clients to help them think about what will happen towards the end of their careers. I'd like to now start talking to them about bringing the board experience forward so that it enables them to have this opportunity to be part of the decision making and the steering of organizations that they feel passionate about. So thank you for that. Can, can I add one more thing sure. on that? I think so my first CEO role When I was being interviewed for that, I was being interviewed by the board of that organization, by the chair, the deputy chair, and one other person. I had been on boards prior, and I didn't join boards for this reason, but I had been on boards prior. So I could say to that interview panel, I know what it's like to be on your side of the table. I know what it's like to have a CEO who meets the needs of a board and writes reports that are really helpful for the board, who keeps them in the loop about things, who you know, gives them a heads, you know, no surprises, gives them a heads up when things are going well and when things are not going so well. Mm -hmm. I know what it's like to be on your side of the table. And as I say, I didn't join a board so that I could get a CEO role down the track. But having that board experience helped me to get that CEO role because the board knew that I understood it both from the kind of operational side and from the governance side. So if people are looking to access, I guess, executive leadership, being on a board can be a great way of showcasing your skills as well because, and particularly if you're looking at the CEO roles, you're going to be interviewed by the board. That's who will be interviewing you for the role. So if you can say to them, you understand what their role is, that is going to help you to get to those C-suite roles as well as beyond C-suite, what roles for that portfolio career. 
It's such a great recommendation. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that insight. And yes, that's a great answer. If you're listening, keep that on file <laughs> so that you can use it in the future. Helios, thank you so much once again for joining me. And I hope we can keep in touch and hopefully bring you back in the future to talk about the future of board positions. Who knows? Things change all the time. So we may need to talk to you again in a couple of years. Always happy to share. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. My pleasure. I really enjoyed my conversation with Helia. In this episode, we've entered into an area of the corporate world that many aspire to reach, but might not know where to start. Board positions are challenging. So it's important for you to be aware of that and be prepared if this is part of your career goals. If you're considering board roles or simply want to understand the path to board roles, I have three more episodes on the podcast that I believe you should listen to, and I have added the links to them in the show notes below. But in case you're on your podcast app and you can go to them straight away, they are episodes 56, 104, and 105. Helia's insights have been invaluable. So in the episode show notes, you can also find a link to her website to learn more about her podcast and the community she has created for female board members. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I hope that you have found this conversation enlightening and that it helps you on your path to your board role. If you want to always be connected with the Job Hunting Podcast, remember to press follow wherever you found this. Sometimes it's called subscribe button. So wherever you're listening, whatever podcast app you have, or if you're on YouTube, press follow and keep in touch with us. If you're really serious about your career advancement, then take the next step and join thousands of other professionals around the world who are already subscribed to the newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter where I send you the latest episode of the Job Hunting Podcast, plus a deep dive on a topic or share with you important articles that I believe you should be aware of to be prepared for your career in the future. So don't miss out and subscribe below. There's a link in the show notes, or you can go to my website, renatabernardi.com. That's R-E-N-A-T-A-B-E-R-N-A-R-D-E.com. Ciao for now, and I'll see you next time.